Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network podcast. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat. I am in dialogue today with Dr. Alejandro Anaya Munoz and Dr. Barbara Frey. Dr. Alejandro Anaya Munoz is Vice President for Academic Affairs at Universidad Iberoamericana in Mexico City. Dr. Barbara Frey is Emerita Director of the Human Rights Program at the University of Minnesota. We are here to discuss their edited volume, Mexico's Human Rights Crisis, published by University of Pennsylvania Press, 2019. Thank you for being with us today. I couldn't be more delighted. Thank you, Ari. It's great to be here. Yeah, thank you. To begin, please tell us about yourselves. Where did you grow up? Were there any life events that inspired you to pursue the path of academics? Should I? You go ahead, Alejandro, if you'd like to start. Okay, thank you. Yeah, well, I was born in Guadalajara, Mexico, and I raised uh, in uh, the city of Querétaro, and uh, I guess nothing particular until after finishing my undergraduate degree in international relations, I ended up working uh, in the state of Chiapas in the south of Mexico, which is a, an indigenous uh, state, which had been the mid-1990s was in the midst of, uh, of the Zapatista uprising, which uh, I suppose our listeners know about. And, uh, and that was that kind of moment in which I decided to focus uh, in human rights issues no? and work around human rights, those rights in Mexico, definitely. Thank you. And I, I grew up in uh, a suburb of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, I, I worked, I came to academics through activism. Um, I ran a human rights organization in Minnesota that was uh, became the Advocates for Human Rights, which is a pretty well-known organization that works globally. And while I was at the Advocates uh, as its first director, um, we carried out a series of uh, human rights investigations in Mexico. And um, so I did that from my perspective in as a human rights advocate. And then um, I started teaching as a, an adjunct professor while I was working in the organization. And when I left the organization, um, I was um, uh, hired as the director of the human rights program at the university where I was for the past 22 years. Um, and this was one of the projects that I worked on um, it, in a sort of engaged academic way. I, I bridge the field of the academy and human rights advocacy. What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers? As editors, what was your overall vision for the book? Yeah, I guess that that, that question is related to a question that I have been receiving back here in Mexico since the publication of the book, which is, 
why is the book in English? Why is it published in the US? No, uh, given that it's a book about human rights in Mexico and uh, um, and I, I I don't know if Barb will will agree, but we we uh, saw that it was also very important for an English speaking audience to have access uh, uh, to these approaches to what is going on in Mexico. No, so probably the, the human rights situation in Mexico is not well known in English speaking countries. And uh, as the title of the book expresses, it's a human rights crisis. And it's paramount that the world know about what's going on in Mexico of human rights. Yeah, I'm in total agreement with that. I, um, it, we're living in, in uh, both countries. I, I understand in the United States in particular, which, you know, borders Mexico and many of our uh, concerns are in common, um, that there's a, a, a lack of understanding of how serious and widespread the human rights crisis is in Mexico. And uh, th there are certain cases that break through, like the case of the 43 students in Ayotzinapa. Um, there are occasional stories that break through, but um, uh, th there's a sense that getting a book into the academic literature in English, which is the most prominent uh, uh, language of the academy was was necessary to raise the visibility about the problem uh, on a more global scale. People living in Mexico understand that there's a crisis, and outside of Mexico, it's obviously much less known. Um, my other uh, goal for the book was to share the work of these brilliant Mexican researchers. Many of our researchers are able to write in English, but um, a, a number of them don't don't write in English or don't regularly write in English. And so um, a lot of what I felt I could contribute was uh, making sure that the um, uh, that the ideas and the work, of these Mexican scholars was shared on a, a broader scale with the English speaking world. Yeah, if I could add a little bit of that, Ari, I think that one of the uh, of the features of the uh, the highlights of the book is this combination between uh, uh, U.S. and Mexican scholars. Uh, most of us, I think, knew each other uh uh before the book but not all of us no so so there was uh it was a very very rich exchange of mexican and us academia working together to explain the same phenomena what are the primary themes in your book uh, i'd say that the the main theme is pretty obvious. It's just to raise the visibility that there actually is a crisis that affects all sectors in Mexico um, and that the state is involved in these human rights violations. So just identifying the violence as a human rights violation in nature in which the state holds responsibility was uh, an important theme. Um, the, uh, 
much of the book deals with civil and political rights violations, um, the whole spectrum of disappearances, extrajudicial executions, torture, um, but there are also economic and social rights that are highlighted to give a sense of the whole spectrum of violations. And then, um, and then we wanted to um, highlight what we believed were the causes of this crisis, which we identified as um, impunity, uh, the war against the, the government's use of, of violence to combat uh, the organized crime. And also, it, I, I would say in general, the failed democratic state that, that allows this kind of um, widespread violation to occur. Yeah, and impunity is, you know, kind of the backbone in all of the chapters. So you have, you know, severe uh, uh, situations or, or, or uh, a severe situation of human rights violation in which there is no accountability at all. Perpetrators, uh, uh, you know, remain remain free uh, of of investigation and obviously uh, free of punishment. So, so that's that's a particularly uh, uh, disturbing finding in the book. Uh, you know, this impunity around human rights violations in Mexico and how impunity like Barb was just saying, uh, feeds into a vicious uh, circle, which brings more violations about, no? So you have a violation which is not, uh, which doesn't, which is not investigated and nobody is sanctioned. And that itself encourages new cases of abuse. Can you place the contents of your book in historical perspective for us? How has Mexico's human rights situation changed since the dirty war? Uh, do you want me to? Yeah, uh, go ahead, Alejandro. Yeah, so, so that so the the, the so-called dirty war, no, in the nineteen sixties and early uh, early seventies, by the way, is also still. Uh, 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 no case for for justice, no, and for accountability. Uh, but I think that the kind of the moment for the current human rights situation, the current human rights crisis, um, has been or or began to be ferment to to ferment, so to speak, uh, immediately after the abuses of the of the. 1960s, the 1970s, you know, in a context of authoritarianism, uh, one-party rule for many, many decades, and the democratic push from different angles of society, which was being uh, 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 suppressed, no? So Mexico has been experiencing human rights problems all along. Um, but maybe if we want to kind of move closer to the current uh, situation, 
I would maybe draw a line in the sense when uh, uh, quote unquote democracy came to Mexico. No, a new political party came into the uh, to the presidency. Vicente Fox. And there was a kind of a that things would change in the country. You know, democracy was there because the PRI was no longer in power. And uh, uh, so there were a few years in which the expectations were positive, inclusive, in, including regarding human rights. But then, even, even very quietly, maybe without... Uh, people noticing what was going on, the social tissue of the country began to erode rapidly in this context of quote-unquote democratization, regime change maybe a little bit if you want, uh, but uh, the new kind of political elite uh, didn't really change the structures of the Mexican state. So we still had a, 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 a weak state. Uh, so in that, in that context, the security situation erode to uh, uh, go badly wrong and violent uh, around uh, crime, organized crime in general came kind of started to surface, no? And the reaction of the government, this is 2007, no? The reaction of the government to this insecurity crisis was to hit hard with the military. And that's the beginning of the current crisis. I don't know about you. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Yeah. Um, I, I noticed in the book, I thought that Laura Rubio's chapter um, laid out uh, a, a, an interesting arc of the um, deterioration of human rights or the, the nature of the human rights violations as it pertained to internally displaced persons, which was the focus of her chapter. And um, she noted that in the 1970s and 80s, uh, the characterization of the violence was, was communal disputes over land. So in several states, um, notably, you know, Oaxaca, Guerrero, Chiapas, these states where there were indigenous communities that had land um, claims, that that um, that was the, the nature of the, the the tension with the government and where we saw the 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 most serious human rights violations that led to internal displacement, but then. Um, the after the Zapatista uprising, uh, there tended to be a, a, a more direct, um, violent approach by the military and paramilitary forces against indigenous people that was more what we had come to see with Central America than with Mexico. And then um, I agree with, with Alejandro that the 
the shift in democracy or the 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 hope that um in the 2000 election that things were going to build into a more robust democracy unfortunately sort of coincided with the growth of organized crime in the state and i i would point out as an american that it's important to understand that the in particular the growth of really expensive drugs and um, in the post-NAFTA era, where a lot of the opportunities for farming and other occupations had been reduced significantly for people living um, in particular states in Mexico, that um, the the increase in um, the, you know the there was an increase in migration because people didn't have work, but there's also an increase in organized crime because. Um, that became the fruitful um, opportunity for young men to to be able to support themselves and make a living. And then that then the the fruits of that the growth of the cocaine industry and and the the um, demand in the United States um, changed the nature of organized crime's relationship with the government. And and that's where you know go- governments. Some some of the presidents of Mexico tried to use military responses and others tried to placate organized crime more, but never has it, you know, organized crime has never been this powerful in Mexico as it has in the past 15 years. And that's that's led to, you know, just enormous violence. How do Mexican human rights abuses vary state by state? Well, this. Um, yeah. oh, no, go ahead. No, no, sorry. Go ahead, Beth. Yeah. So, I mean, just building off my last comment, that a lot of this has to do with the presence and the nature of organized crime. There's, there's infighting between different cartels within the country, and there are there's a rise and fall within uh, uh, regions of. Um, uh, you know, particular crime groups. So, and then the nature of of some of these criminal organizations like Los Zetas or the Jalisco Nuevo Generacion in, in Jalisco is, is quite violent. And so the use, the incorporation of, of violence as a business strategy so that um, they can have the most economic gain possible um, often, uh, you know, when when they're uh, we we see corresponding nature of human rights violations in states. Um, there also are obviously political differences in states, um, which uh, you, you know di- different parties are governors of the states, and whether or not they they are in collaboration with the federal government depends on party politics. And then there's regional things that just are defined states. So the northern border states have, you know, these huge number of migrants who are traveling through and and also um, drug trafficking at the border. And then um, and so there's there tends to be more violence in in some of those states. Um, But. You know, I think a lot of it has to do with the, the, 
the nature of the uh, of organized crime and how the particular state government is responding to that crime at any particular moment. Yeah, and something I would add, or more more than that, emphasize, is the kind of the shifting pattern, the violence, no, which it tends to concentrate in some states at some point, and then maybe it dissipates a little bit and 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 explodes somewhere else uh uh so so and it's related to all the things that barb was just and it depends it's it's highly correlated with to to criminal violence and then criminal violence kind of draws in the and then the violations of human rights kind of also increase or or uh, even explode in some in some cases, and then for some part, maybe the violence and the uh, uh, tensions can diminish a little bit in some places, and then come back a couple of years later. So exactly. it's very erratic, no? <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess one interesting dynamic when you're talking about states is the difference between the experience of living in Mexico City and the experience of living or, you know, other um, important urban commercial centers and living in rural areas. You know, it's your, your risk is much higher if you are living in places that are more sparsely populated, where you have to travel along roads, um, and so a lot of the violations occur in transit in places that are um, not as well policed. Um, and then, you, you know, in Mexico City, it, you you will experience, um, a, a, you know, in most neighborhoods, right, you will you will experience it's just your kind of typical urban violence, right? There's crime, uh, but you're uh the ordinary person is less at risk of just of becoming the target of uh kidnapping or disappearance it's not that it doesn't happen it's just that there are more people and there there is uh th there's more concern by the country of protecting these places um because of tourism and because of the importance of their commercial sectors um in neighbor certain neighborhoods in in Mexico City, of course, are are just as dangerous as as you would be in rural Mexico. And then another um, type of area that is worth highlighting is um, tourist uh, places, right? So so many Americans uh, travel to uh, beaches in Cancun or uh, Acapulco tourist centers, and for the most part. Um, the tourist places are are protected um and and are you're not at high risk there and because again people the the criminal organizations and the state are benefiting from external money coming in and being spent in those tourist places and so there's um an intentionality of keeping those places a, a, a safer so that it doesn't scare away uh, the money that comes there. So there are all sorts of variations like this. And I would say 
as Alejandro mentioned, there is a, a certain movement of the violence that you you know you can track. We can we can track through the numbers, um, and and then just by nature, the border regions and um, uh, kind of trafficking routes are just in uh, you know much higher risk areas. Yeah, and about that, something else which we didn't highlight, but. A particular focus of the book is the situation of migrants through Mexico. Mm -hmm. So these routes are hot spots all the time. <laughs> no, the, the the routes through which migrants are uh, trafficked in uh, are yeah permanently places relations, and that is you know that goes through all of the country from the south to the north. Yeah, and as, you know, Javier Trevino writes in this book, there's, you know, a, um, a, you know, these are underreported, seriously underreported violations because um, uh, the the migrants have, um, you know, if, if Mexican citizens have little access uh, a little remedy for uh, violations. The the um, uh, the migrants have almost none, and that there's a even a sort of granular level of uh, uh, violation that occurs um, with with migrants because Mexicans who are that. Um, understand that that the migrants don't have much protection and so there's there's just complete exploitation and a, a terribly high level for instance of sexual violence against any women or girls who are traveling and often uh, migrants are uh, disappeared uh, by the cartels and uh, coerced into um, doing essentially slave enslaved at, by the cartels to do their dirty work. So it's it's just a very risky thing, which is why we see migrant groups traveling in large groups um, so that there's some form of internal protection. What is the legacy of Chiapas in the, in the year 2022 in the context of your book? What kinds of human rights abuses were perpetrated by Mexico's army in repressing the Zapatista Rebellion of 1994. Uh, well, you know the the direct and explicitly direct repression of the Zapatista uprising by the military was very limited in terms of time, because very quickly in the process, the government switched to a frontal, open confront army to a more dirty war tactics involving paramilitary groups, which, you know, are harder to trace and harder to link to the, the state. Um, so, but I guess that, that, that uh, uh, yeah, so the, the, the repression against the, the, the Zapatista communities, very much led by paramilitary groups, you know, groups of local people also, which were supported and uh, 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 promoted and so on by, by the government, but very 
uh, quietly and uh, and uh, very uh, you know surreptitiously. Um, and then, but I guess that a very very important legacy is actually on the positive side, which is the legacy of social mobilization of uh, social movements demanding justice and uh, 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 organizing fight for this or to seek justice. And uh, uh, a, 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 a very important feature of the Mexican human rights crisis right now, which we didn't cover in the book because it wasn't that evident at the time, is the role of the colectivos, the collectives of families who have taken the lead in social organization in, 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 in Mexico to respond to the crisis and to the abuses. So it's basically mothers, mothers of the disappeared leading Mexican civil society uh, uh, currently. And I don't know if we can, I don't know, uh, uh, speaking as a social scientist, I don't know if we can trace that to the Zapatista legacy of social mobilization, but but maybe there's that kind of invisible connection through a couple of decades in the in the middle, no? Thing uh, that just came to my mind at this point with your very interesting question. Yeah, I think it's an important thing to point out um, that and that is covered in a lot of the chapters in the book is is the the significance of the human rights movement and really the sophistication of Mexico's human rights movement. Um, it's um, uh, it there are di different levels of um, uh, of human rights organizations uh, that are quite active and um, do really um, important work. Uh, some are on the national level. Uh, like there's the National Commission for the Defense and Promotion of Human Rights and Central Prode. Some of these are affiliated with uh, some of the religious institutions in, in Mexico. Um, and then the women's movement has been very uh, well organized uh, on a, a local and national level with um, SEDEM is the Center for Women's Human Rights and Kire with a, the Center for Reproductive uh, Rights in the country. And then, uh, and then as Alejandro suggests, then even if you just keep moving towards the less formal groups, it's the colectivos, which are the kind of the moral leaders of the country's human rights movement because they're simply um, seeking justice and sometimes just seeking their their children or their family members who've been disappeared. And um, so that you know that it's it's interesting to think of the uh, these various large forces of organized crime, the the military uh, and and their role, um, uh, the role of um, uh, international um, uh, businesses in the country, 
um, as well as nationalized businesses. But then in the nonprofit or, or non-governmental sector, um, you have it, you know, quite a, a big uh, sector of organizations that, that um, have really made an impact uh, on Mexico and are, are studied for their work in the region. Um, and, it, you know, it is interesting because Mexico didn't have that group of NGOs until the mid-1980s. Uh, prior to 1985, Mexico was considered a safe and um, pretty just society, and it was the, the site where um, uh, where human rights actors were who were in exile were fleeing to find safety. And it was really after the earthquake in 1985 uh, where the flaws of the state became apparent and a lot of the human rights violations that have been going on began to be seen. And then the domestic um, uh, human rights organizations started to rise. Can you comment on the use of torture by Mexico's military and Mexico's police? Well, about torture in the world, including Mexico. So maybe you want to... Sure, I'll, I can start. Yeah. So, um, violations of torture have have long been um, characteristics of of Mexicans' criminal justice system, as well as uh, its criminal system or its its penal system and um, and the military system and. Um, the organization that I used to run, the Advocates for Human Rights, in, in a series of reports back in the uh, 1990s, we, we documented how uh, the criminal justice system was not um, well-trained or professional in the way it investigated crimes. And so almost all criminal cases depend on a confession. And we found that almost all people who confessed had been beaten or tortured. And, and so unfortunately that um, legacy of torture in the criminal justice system is something that um, has pervaded um, all of the public facing state institutions, including the military and um, and the the police. And uh, so this is one reason why there's so much lack of trust in the criminal justice system and, and in state authorities in Mexico. So this the, the, the high levels of impunity that we discussed in the book um, are largely because people are unwilling to engage with the police. I mean, it's, it's a pretty standard practice that if you get robbed or um, something happens to you, you, you don't want to call the police because the police are not good at investigating. And you're, there's a high likelihood that you or someone you know might end up being victimized by the police. And so in this, this these kind of, um, I would say, these violations of bodily integrity kind of flow from a, you know, they flow from the understanding that there, th there's nothing that will happen. 
um, <laughs> if the police do this. So now let me just point out, it's one of the interesting um, things that we we highlight in the book and is, is well-documented is that as an international actor, Mexico is, is very well known as um, a highly, uh, highly visible promoter of human rights. It has ratified every major human rights treaty. Um, it invites international experts of all kinds to come to the country. It's a very good actor on the international scene at the United Nations in the inter-American system. And despite having these this good record at the international level, we we see these this uh, gap, a compliance gap, where there continue to be violations, and this is true in torture. So the it, Mexico is a great proponent of the Istanbul, Istanbul Protocol uh, on investigations of torture, and they brought in uh, organizations to do trainings with. Uh, police, with the attorney general, with forensic scientists, um, all trying to train uh, these organizations uh, to eliminate torture as a practice in their criminal justice system. Um, the problem is that there, when it comes to incentives, there's really no incentive for um, a police officer not to beat someone up. Um, because they know they'll never be held accountable and because their main goal is to get a confession. So, and, you know, there are all these kind of contradictions of what happens at the grassroots level and what Mexico's commitments are on the international level. And this is true in enforced disappearances as well as torture. But um, torture has been well-documented. Uh, uh, the special repertoire on torture uh, Juan Mendez um, identified a, an, a generalized pattern of torture through the country, meaning it's um, it's not just an occasional occurrence, but that it happens on a widespread uh, basis um, carried out by um, all uh, uh, all areas of law enforcement. On page 226, there's a passage in your book uh where the following uh, is stated. Granted, the role of limited statehood and even decentralization might be quite different in settings in which the central authorities authentically have tried to address human rights shortcomings. That is, in cases in which quote-unquote willingness has clearly been present. In this sense, the distinction between quote-unquote lack of will and quote-unquote lack of capacities or quote-unquote voluntary and quote-unquote involuntary sources of violations is analytically valuable, but an empirical examination of quote-unquote willingness seems to have analytical priority. There seems to be little point in discussing capacities if we do not show first that governments have really tried to implement change. Willingness in this sense is the, the key scope condition for human rights change. The spiral model and similar approaches that emphasize the role of pressure, quote-unquote, from above, suppose that willingness is generated by pressure and argumentation. It is striking, however, that willingness seems to be taken for granted in the presence of pressure and argumentation or other conditions that, therefore, it is not explicitly examined empirically. 
cases like that of Mexico, in which the government has shown remarkable skills to quote unquote talk the talk without quote unquote walking the walk and grows more and more resilient to transnational pressures suggests that theories that do not explicitly theorize willingness are flawed. Can you say more about what is meant in this passage? Yeah, sure. That's that's actually my chapter. My chapter mm. with yeah, Lamakia. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, it has to do with uh, the stressing the importance of having a willing elite, a political elite that is truly willing to uh, achieve significant change the way the state behaves towards people. No, So the uh, importance of stressing that um, tackling human rights abuses begins with a political elite that truly, truly wants to change the state of affairs and not only attempts to be taking issues seriously. Uh, and actors uh, might, you know, look at the ratification of treaties, the adoption of new laws, or the creation of institutions as a sign that the government really changed things, right? But uh, bottom line of the matter is, in the case of Mexico, that that is only kind of window dressing and uh, a true will to change things is not present. So it's kind of a call to international actors not to be naive and just to consider that because the government is ratifying treaties, they really are committed to change. Is that kind of clear or? Thank you. Can you comment on the proliferation of forced disappearances in Mexico? Who are the primary victims? Who are the primary perpetrators? Sure. Um, So one of my projects after this book um, has been to work with the Observatory on Disappearances and Impunity in Mexico, which is a joint project with um, UNAM, with the Center for uh, Juridical Research and and also Floxo, Mexico, and a scholar at Oxford, it's Latin American Center. And um, so it, disappearances are also widespread throughout the country. There are some, um, there are some states where um, the violence goes up and down, depending again on the uh, the level of political actor, I'm sorry, the level of of violence um, by the uh, drug cartels. Um, What we have come to realize is that uh, disappearances, you know, it's allowed because of this state of impunity um, and it function, it serves uh, an economic function 
in the in the country for the cartels. It's part of the business model. Essentially, who gets disappeared are um, people who serve uh, the macro criminal network that exists between government actors and the cartels. Uh, and and the, the, the idea of macro criminality as highlighted in Daniel Vasquez's piece and his subsequent work is th that um, all these actors are engaged in a joint project where they all benefit from the criminal network uh, making making money. So uh, if we think about um, free labor, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of people are disappeared and fo into forced free labor, uh, whether it's digging tunnels or um, doing hard labor, um, or, or they are coerced into doing the violence by the uh, by the cartels. We've had people who've escaped from uh, these situations who've been able to testify about what happens. Um, uh, young, the the disappeared are all young, largely young, between the ages of 15 and 40 are the, the largest numbers. People who can, um, the, the men who can do hard labor and um, young women who are disappeared at even younger ages, tend, tend to be younger ages, are disappeared for um, uh, to make money for the criminal organizations through sex trafficking. Um, they're involved in international trafficking, uh, pornography, um, uh, prostitution. Um, and then uh, we, we know that a large number of um, uh, of the people who've been disappeared are subsequently killed, and um, some are found in mass graves. Others are uh, um, systematically uh, eradicated with with gruesome tactics, you know, using chemical vats and things like that. But the, you know, what we have to understand about disappearance is that it fits into the economic and political logic of the uh, of the uh, macro criminal network between the state and organized crime so uh it it's always there as a as an easy threat uh if some so that if a low-level policeman who has a contact with the local criminal organization doesn't like someone they can um they can turn them over to organized crime or can even just you disappear someone themselves um, because they know that they won't be caught. So uh, that is the problem. There's the government acknowledges more than a hundred thousand disappearances in the country um, over the past fifteen years. And um, what's interesting in light of um, uh, in light of Alejandro's previous conversation about willingness and our discussion about this compliance gap between uh, Mexico's laws and their their ability to uh, prevent human rights violations is that um, Mexico has an incredibly great law, national law against disappearances. It's a model law internationally, which was 
um, pushed and adopted because of uh, pushed by the family organizations and adopted. And um, it, it, among other things, there's a national search commission and there are search commissions that have been established in every one of the 32 states in Mexico. Uh, and despite this, uh, disappearance continues unabated and um, in some states is worse than it's ever been. So you, um, uh, we know a lot more than we used to know about disappearances, but um, it's still a practice that uh, is carried out with barbaric frequency. Yeah, so I, I would only add, you know, this, this model that Barb is describing uh, is based on the fact that people in Mexico have become become a commodity or prime in a context of absolute impunity. So if they're a commodity and you have to discard of it at some point, then you do, no? Or if in order to profit from a body, you need to make it or make her most often disappear. You make her disappear and from that body, which is, you know, has uh, ev uh, 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 evaporated from the uh, their previous life. And the state is both unwilling and unable to prevent that. And that's the drama of current Mexico, the tragedy of current Mexico. Can you comment on the Radia Pacheco case before the Inter-American Court of Human Rights? You know, I agreed to do that, and then I didn't go back and review it. Maybe Alejandro has something to say. Do you want to have anything to say about the Pacheco case? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very important. It, it, it's, it's been very important that, you know, the Inter-American Court ruled against Mexico in that case. And in other cases that have been following Radilla. So it was the first important case, so to speak, that the Inter-American Court. But the uh, content of the ruling has not been implemented, really. So, I mean, it's very hard to say, but not much has changed, really, as the result of this case or the other cases in the Inter-American Court. Uh, so the, the limits of international justice in these and other cases is the influence is very limited. So it's good as a, uh, a precedent, but in practice, nothing has, has changed. Not even the, the level of compliance with the ruling of the court is 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 very limited. Uh, the Mexican state has only complied with the easy parts of the uh, of the ruling, the real structural deep uh, of of disappearances in the country. 
Yeah, I, that that was helpful. And I think that it's important to know that there have been a number of other rulings in the inter-American system and in the United Nations in various treaty bodies, uh, uh, like the Human Rights Committee, um, that have found uh, Mexico responsible for uh, disappearances. And these are important precedents and they're important at, at the international legal level, but uh, they can make people really cynical because um, when they see that nothing changes, despite a, really a lot of international pressure, especially on this issue of disappearances, there's a huge amount of, of um observation monitoring of what's going on the international committee of the red cross is involved in, in, in you know looking for bodies and trying to identify them and um, the international ngos are really engaged and the un has sent very high level people to uh, have conversations with the mexican government and um and still we continue to see these problems what are the difficulties involved in defining "quote unquote" human viol human rights violations in the Mexican context? What are the issues, ramifications, and controversies involved simply in this very term, human rights violations? How can the very term human rights violations be interpreted differently by different agents and actors? And how does the linguistic constructs human rights violations itself become contested and disputed in Mexico's context? I think that the biggest uh, concern in terms of the human rights construct is that the state uh, tries to distance itself from the responsibility for it being uh, being their responsibility because much of the violence is carried out by private actors. So um, the big issue is uh, is echoed in a, a popular statement that it's you know fue el estado it was the state. So after the forty three were disappeared, uh, this was a really important um, public outcry to get people to understand that it, the state is not trying to stop organized crime. The state actually is part of organized crime. But it becomes very difficult to prove this when you've got documentable problems with crime in your state. Um, and uh, it, you know, the state always has as a justification that um, it wasn't us, it was organized crime. And then the other thing that the state tends to do is to criminalize the victims. So when someone is killed or disappeared, they are um, crim they are uh, characterized as uh, a troublemaker, a bad apple. So, the, you know, when you're in this context where the state is always denying uh, its responsibility and when they're a good actor at the international level where their diplomatic core is very um, positive and productive actor at the international level, it's difficult to um, put them in the same category as some of the 
the most systematic violators in the world. You know, you're, you're not going to talk about Syria, Iran, and Mexico. Mexico just, you know, it has too uh, positive a reputation at the international level to fall in that category. And yet, if you look at things like um, the number of homicides, the number of journalists who've been um, kidnapped or killed, uh, the the number of, of women who've been killed or disappeared. It, you know, the, the, uh, the numbers are the same as some of these rogue countries that we uh, condemn at the international level. So this is the challenge. It's both a political challenge at the international level and it's a logistical challenge within Mexico to try to hold the state accountable for things that they can claim are the acts of uh, private criminal organizations. Can you comment on the abuses that take place against journalists and against students? What are some specific examples of note in both present times and in historical context? Yeah. Well can comment that before before I have to say goodbye. Uh, sure. Yeah, that's another manifestation, another pretty severe and dramatic manifestation of the human rights crisis, which we haven't talked about. You are completely right. The uh, the issue of violence. <laughs> I'm sorry, violence against journalists uh, in the country, uh, and it's kind of the same story. Impunity is behind it. I'm and journalists who, you know, investigate uh, organized crime or even more on the links between organized crime and political uh, actors. They are, if they are bothering someone, they are just killed with uh, absolute impunity. And uh, the numbers have been increasing as time has been evolving. Uh, and that, <clears throat> sorry, that is, uh, yeah, yet another manifestation of the human rights crisis in which the Mexican authorities are unwilling and unable to do, uh, uh, to take significant steps to uh, uh, eliminate this kind of, of violence. And that uh, and a last comment about students is that, especially uh, uh, college students, university students are increasingly kind of joining the ranks of the disappeared. Uh, so it's not only uneducated uh, people in rural areas who are disappearing, but you know, increasingly there's there's uh, university students in urban areas who disappear and maybe because of that their cases have been more visible in the public discussion you know when a college student disappears that's kind of a bigger deal that's something also we need to talk about no uh but the fact is that yeah there have been also kind of increasing cases in which students uh, disappear in the country. Yeah, I think that um, the in our study of the 
of the press's response to disappearances, we saw that there are there's a higher rate of news coverage when uh, when students get uh, arrested. They're they're uh, considered a more worthy victim um, and uh, and generate more emotional response. But uh, all that aside, um, it's it still generates great fear. Um, and uh, among among students, um, there was a case in Jalisco in 2018 where three film students were um, were disappeared, and there are various uh, there are various explanations for that it was a mistake and um, that intended. Um, the intended victims were other people, and uh, the the government reacted pretty quickly to trying to put an end to the investigation and and to find uh, some some responsible uh, suspects because it understands that politically it's not acceptable when um, you know uh, higher profile students get get disappeared. But it, it's still a concern, um, and then of of course, you know, the case of the forty three was the most visible, and continued. There are many people around the world who think that's the only case that happened. They have no idea that there's of the the consistent nature of disappearances that are happening. In terms of journalists, I just wanted to note I I was looking at the committee to protect journalists, and this year that there have been at least thirteen journalists killed. And um, over the past decade, there have been something like 64 journalists who were killed. It's one of the it's one of the most dangerous countries in the world uh, to be a journalist. And it's especially true, again, in some of these rural areas where there is community radio or there's, um, you know, local reporting. And so what what happens when we've talked to reporters about this is that there's a lot of self-censorship that goes on and that actually there's been an, uh, a disappearance of, of local coverage in a lot of areas in the country because it's just considered um, to be too dangerous. But I, I'm afraid I have to go, sorry. Bye Alejandro, yes. great bye, to bye. see you. Thank you, so thank you for you participating. Have... Thank you, sure. okay. it was an honor, thank you. The podcast is ready. I will. It'll be approximately three weeks or so. I I would actually love to stay in touch with you separate from this interview. If you're open to it, um, there's a lot that I'd love to learn more from you. And I'd be honored if I could stay in touch with you to um, continue a conversation with you. Absolutely. Great. Definitely. Thank you. Okay. With delight. Good to see you, Barb. Bye-bye. Nice to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. To our listeners... This is Ari Barbalat, host on the New Books Network. Today, I have been in dialogue with Alejandro Anaya Munoz and Barbara Frey, editors of the new volume, Mexico's Human Rights Crisis, published by University of Pennsylvania Press 2019. Alejandro Anaya Munoz is vice president for academic affairs at Universidad Iberoamericana in Mexico City. Barbara Frey is Emerita Director of the Human Rights Program at the University of Minnesota. Thank you.